Today on the podcast, Marcus, we get to talk to a rock and roll Hall of Famer, Nick Mason of Pink Floyd. I know to be able to hear stories and talk about music with a rock and roll Hall of Famer whose band pretty much created a genre on their own in some ways, really spectacular. As always, sponsored by Boldfoot Socks and Crooked Eye Brewery, away we go with Nick Mason on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Nick, thank you very much for taking time to chat today. We're looking forward to seeing you when you come here to Philadelphia. Could you tell us about the musicians you're playing with on this tour and what we can look forward to from you when you play live? Well, what can I tell you about the musicians? A dreary lot. (laughs) Just all I could find down at the job centre. Never make these sort of jokes. It's terrible. Can't help myself. It gets back to them. (laughs) (laughs) It will get back. It always does. No, to be fair. First of all, start with Lee Harris, because Lee's important, because the whole Saucers concept was really Lee leading on it. And he'd been to see one of Dave's solo shows somewhere and he thought, why why doesn't Nick do something? So what he did was he actually was very bright. He went to Guy Pratt and Guy I've worked with for the last 30 years. And um, I I really respect Guy's playing and uh, he said he thought it was a good idea. And I thought, well, if Guy thinks it's okay, then it's probably okay. So then there was a bit of a well, who else do we need? So we ended up with the band really forming itself. Gary, I don't know how, he's great friends with Guy and I know Gary quite well. When Gary said he thought it was a good idea, I thought that was absolutely terrific. I thought we've got trance music, we've got punk, and now we've got a new romantic. And um, and then we found Don Beacon, because we obviously needed a keyboard player, and that was it. But I, I have to say, I've really been thrilled, actually, to work with these guys, because they're, they're all... They're great musicians, but they're also great company on the road. And sometimes that matters more than whether they can play or not. What's the most fun you guys have on the road? Well, I suppose it sounds doesn't sound the wildest of exciting things, but there's usually an enthusiasm to go out and explore the town, you know, particularly when we were in Europe, and Eastern Europe, places we'd never been to before. And that attitude, rather than going, well, let's go to the hotel and stay there, it's great just going out because you come across all sorts of stuff going on and things to see and do. Nick, I want to ask you about, well, the saucerful days. During a time when rock was being recorded in a formulaic way, you guys broke molds, each of you taking on the role as an individual artist at one point, like on Oma Goma, right? When did you first feel like as a drummer that you were being treated as an equal and as an artist inside the constructs of Pink Floyd? Oh, um, well, it's uh, not something I've ever experienced yet. I'm hoping that eventually they will behave better. Oh, it wasn't a a democracy, is what you're saying? Yes, it was. And I mean, one of the things I'd say is that up until Bob Ezrin and The Wall, I didn't think anyone ever really told me what they thought I should do. And I think it was one of the noticeable things with Ringo on some of the Beatles footage that has been around recently. 
everyone was allowed really to get on and do whatever they thought was right. And I think that was perhaps the sort of model for a lot of bands from the late 60s, early 70s. That sort of ditching of the professional producer, the, the, the producer that was earmarked to go and look after that band and tell them what to do. And I think maybe also George Martin's rather light-handed approach was also part of that model that said, let the guys get on with it rather than telling them how to do it. Every step of the way, Pink Floyd continued to evolve. But what do you think were the key parts of what aligned everything for you guys collectively doing Dark Side of the Moon and making that kind of an impact? Well, I suppose the answer to that is twofold because it's partly what we produced, but it's also partly what other people were producing. You know, now I always come back to this thing that one of the biggest influences of all were the Beatles because they transformed the way the business worked. Up until Sgt. Pepper, it was all about making singles and doing it as quickly as possible. That transformed almost overnight when Sgt. Pepper basically started selling. The record companies all went, okay, there's a new model here, which is we give the, the guys unlimited studio time. We don't force it all into three-hour sessions. They can all take as long as they like. And so much freedom was granted from the realisation that these albums were actually going to make more money than the singles. Going back again to the Dark Side of the Moon era, when you were touring Europe live and working on the songs that would become Dark Side of the Moon, were there any live shows that were turning points in the evolution of any of the songs? And do you remember those moments and what were they like? I don't really have a clear memory. The, the problem is that sometimes I can't remember what was written or was performed before Dark Side and, and then sort of later on where things were modified to really to work with the show. I think, um, I'm trying to think of, of, there were seminal gigs, particularly the Rainbow. The show be began to come together, but in a way, what had been done in the studio was really the, the big adventure because there was more, I'm thinking of something like On the Run, which I think was played it was almost a jazz piece when it was initially played. And then it transformed into a computer thing with the use of the VCS3, the synthesizer. I've no idea where that came out of, but it was a completely different approach to that piece of music. There's something about the Pink Floyd fan and their relationship with you guys. They almost feel like they have part ownership, like a football club, right? You know, like you guys are all on the same team. Talk about the fans and how important they've been to you collectively and individually, especially in these later years when you've been touring with the Saucerfall. Well, I certainly think with the Saucerfall touring, uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is they're invaluable. I mean, not only on a sort of commercial basis, but an encouragement basis. And one of the great things about our fans is they're very keen to spread the word. I mean, one of the nicest things to see is to see an older fan come with, with their kids to a show. Because much as we like playing or love playing the music, being a, a nostalgia band is not really the most exciting thing. You know, what's exciting is to be driving it forward, moving it on a bit. And I think when you get a, new, a younger audience who aren't, don't actually use a reference back to the earliest albums, 
and are hearing the music for the first time. That's very rewarding for us. It seems as if a lot of the younger fans have uh, rifled through mom and dad's record collection and kind of listened through and kind of stuck with the stuff that really, really gets them, you know, things that really resonate with them. Pink Floyd is one of them, Zeppelin's another band. A lot of the classic bands, but not all, like, you know, your level of band in that regard. What do you think it is that gravitates younger ears to music from our era when I was their age, you know, when when you guys were the younger band making your, your way? Who really knows? I think for an age group that have been raised on digital music and sort of cherry-picking tracks, that discovery of albums that have an entire piece of music on one side of a record is often quite surprising to them. And I think if you get engaged in that, that can definitely sort of catch you, catch you and hold you. Yeah, beyond that, I don't really know. There are so many things that sort of sound effects or, or sound the way technology is used, I suppose it is, and the reference to vinyl sound rather than digital CD sound. I think the rediscovery of the vinyl record is an interesting one when you're talking about fans and young fans coming in and so on. And something that none of us appreciated was that the human ear does actually prefer a less accurate sound Kind of like the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Wow. <laughs> what insight from Nick Mason. Seriously, think about how this band of architects and very well-educated people use that education to their advantage in creating their music and everything about that band. The fact that no one ever told him what to play until he got to the wall working with Ezrin tells me that he actually did get treated like an artist right from the beginning and that was different for a lot of drummers in his time for sure and it also shows how much respect that band had for each other as members let's take it to the break now and come back with more with nick mason all about saucer full of secrets on the imbalance history Hey, Ray, it's been a really fun summer, and included in that summer fun is all the happenings at Crooked Eye Brewery over in the heart of Hatboro. So much going on, including the opening of the Crooked Eye Kitchen and the arrival of Salty Vets Barbecue. Madness team started small, but demand immediately outgrew what they'd done, so they've been making more to keep people fed over there. I got to tell you, man, so much has changed in the way things are going, too, like Rich and John are doing a duet now, and they're appearing regularly in addition to all the the regulars like the Crooked Eye Band. And with the fall coming on, you're going to see some really nice fall varieties of beers in the And cider, too, probably. Don't forget, it's all there. Craft cocktails, too, at Crooked Eye at the main location right there off York Road in Hapro. Pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014 and now pouring craft cocktails and serving up that salty vet fall off the bone barbecue. Keep up with what's going on at the Crooked Eye Brewery by following them on Facebook. You know, Marcus, when Marisa got back from her power walk the other day, she started doing a testimonial for Boldfoot Socks. So I told her, hold on. And I sat her down and had her record it. Hey, Marisa, tell us all about your Boldfoot Socks. You know how much I love to go out on that 5.30 a.m. power walk. And I'm usually coming home sweating and dripping wet from head to toe. But since I bought my Boldfoot Socks, that isn't true anymore, at least not for my toes. 
After any workout or one of my long walks, I take off my shoes, I take off my socks, and I can't believe how dry my feet are. Even my socks aren't really that wet. These are the bold foot socks that I'm telling you about. Uh, They're so comfortable that I barely feel them on my feet when I'm walking or exercising. Every time you put on these socks, there's two words in capital letters that have so much meaning. You see the words, be bold. What that means to me is that if I'm going to go out for that walk, that jog, to the gym, wherever I'm going, it gives me a message that I can give it my best shot, that I can be empowered. I know it sounds crazy. It's just a pair of socks, but that's what it does for me. And they also wick the sweat away. That's Boldfoot Socks at Boldfoot.com. Check them out and be bold. Oh, this is just so great to talk to you, Nick, and have you on the podcast. And we can't wait to see you on September 23rd at the Merriam Theater, close to the beginning of the tour. And uh, folks are looking forward. They're entering to win tickets and uh, and all the fun stuff that we've hooked up through uh, your promoters with Pantheon. So we thank you for that and for spending some time with us. What do you like to do when you're not playing, when you're not touring, when you're not thinking about all this stuff? What do you like to kick back and do? Well, I like mechanical things. I've always been mad about cars and motor racing and motorsport. Of course, with lockdown, which has sort of transformed everything, there wasn't very much sort of driving and racing going on. But I love the thing of polishing the tools in the snap-on toolbox and thinking at least about Mendel. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody's workshop was looking pretty good by the time they let us out, right? We didn't actually work on the cars, but my God, did we polish those spanners. (laughs) Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you had played in Eastern European countries and cities that you had not played before with the saucer full of secrets. What are some of your favorite places to have toured and to have visited for the first time on this journey of live shows? Well, I think almost anything that ends with a-N-I-A. Estonia, Romania, Transylvania, which is a country. I thought Transylvania was where Dracula lived. Or maybe Dracula does still live there, but uh, he didn't the show. <laughs> Do you try all the local cuisine as well when you're out there visiting those towns? Oh, definitely. Yeah. No, I, th- I think it's one of the, you know, it's one of the privileges of the job, really, that you get to go to some really interesting places. I mean, the saddest thing about it is that there were two gigs that had to be cancelled. One was Moscow and the other was St. Petersburg. But quite extraordinary to be, you know, that much closer to it all for a couple of weeks. I just want to thank you for the times I've seen you play in Pink Floyd and out, specifically a concert in the 80s, JFK Stadium. I remember it being a misty, drizzly night. And so the effects were in full effect, not to mention that I was in the right state of mind for it. But the music you guys have always brought to the stage, no matter where it is, whether it's a beautiful old theater like the Merriam or JFK Stadium, which is gone now, just a few miles down the road on Broad Street. So so I just wanted to thank you for that. Thank you for taking some time to be on our little podcast. Uh, We keep getting to talk to members of the Rock Hall of Fame, and that's a good thing, I guess. Right, Marcus? I'd have to say it's a very good thing, and it's a lot of fun to learn about 
what happened in real time with you all. Sometimes we've been fortunate enough to get little bits of information that are a little rare, but just because they've come out naturally in the conversation. And for me, being on this end, learning is one of my favorite aspects of doing what I do. And learning about Pink Floyd and what you all have done and remembering your impact on me as a kid and being able to go see the Laser Floyd shows. Do you remember when America went absolutely bonkers with those? Did you ever go see Laser Floyd by chance? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a lovely tie-up between the music and, the, and any of those sort of observatory-type planetariums and, and what have you. But it's interesting what you say about sort of picking up snippets because of course for us it was all really quite a long time ago and there was no sense of the longevity that was going to be there so you know we didn't sort of keep historical records of what we did and how we did it or anything like that and now we're relying on rather fuzzy memory and occasionally I'm afraid to say blatant lying what is one thing that Longtime Pink Floyd fans might be surprised about about you guys as a band internally from say 45, 50 years ago. Something that really sticks with you. Well, I, I suppose really it's the thing that we were always seen to be was the fully psychedelic band who, who never did anything unless they were doing an enormous amount of acid. But actually, when you listen to music and when you see what we did, it's so obvious that, you know, maybe that might have been true of Sid, but that a lot of Pink Floyd is quite a technical exercise rather than, you know, just done off on the whim, so to speak. I had one more question and it slipped. Hold on, give me one second and I will get it back. Hold on. It's so great when the memory of the interviewers is even worse than the memory of the aged rock drummer. <laughs> oh, I remember what it was. When you were an up and coming and young band, were there any bands that you played alongside that were really good that fell apart that you played alongside with in this scene but could have made it? You know, the reality is the only band that really, really made it through was the Rolling Stones. Virtually everyone else, well, in, in particular, obviously Jimi Hendrix, and then Jimi Hendrix when he was playing with Eric, you know, with the day, Days of Cream. Uh, the band that Family, if you remember Family, they were a band, they sort of imploded on an American tour and never really sort of fulfilled what I would have thought they could achieve. Then lots of bands that were sort of supergroups that broke up and carried on. Traffic, literally dozens of them, really lots of good players and lots of players who then went on and did other things you know someone like jeff beck for instance who eventually comes out as a solo artist our guest on the imbalance history of rock and roll nick mason saucer full of secrets go see the tour it's going to be a whole lot of fun and a whole lot of floyd good stuff thank you my pleasure you know sometimes i have to pinch myself marcus when we talk to a member of the rock hall of fame I know we like to poke holes in that institution and all that, but when you have a member of Pink Floyd on your podcast, woo! Totally. We're like kids in a candy store, but more <laughs> kids in a music shop. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you know, in our day, the perfect store would have been candy on one side, music on the other. You know, uh, it would have been an amazing I would have moved in. <laughs> You're upstairs. Mom, Dad, I'm moving upstairs from the candy record store. I'm renting the apartment up there, working. 
working my brain like a bag full of sweets. Pink Floyd, the music, Nick Mason, the rhythm of it all. So good to have him. I would love to get him back on a future episode yeah. and pick his brain more because he has so much to offer. And even though he said oh, things like, I don't remember and this and that, it comes back to him when he's talking and things just come out and the stories and the perspective are just fascinating. Truth versus legend, especially in regards to the acid intake and how much it was a part of their creative process. What was part of their creative process was that architecture they'd started out in, right? They were constructing stuff, but not buildings, constructing ideas and music and art. Just an amazing talk with a man who was there for all of it. If you have any Nick Mason stories to share, please share them with us. If you're going to go see the saucer full of secrets, please let us know. And don't forget to get to our website to register to win the VIP seats, not just for Philadelphia, but for anywhere on the tour. Find the closest date and register near you because podcasting is everywhere. Well, let's put the wraps on this episode, buddy. It's been so much fun talking with Nick Mason, and uh, I enjoy seeing your synapses fire over talking to this legend. It's a lot of fun. It's always a lot of fun chatting with people like him. Uh, <laughs> I can't wait to do it again. And maybe we'll get to talk to him again. I sure hope so. That was a lot of fun. Whatever we're talking about here in the Dark Doc Media Studios on the Pantheon Podcast Network, we thank you for tuning in and checking it out. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And we'll catch you next time on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll.